Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Talks between Russia and Ukraine restart in Turkey, where a Russian billionaire makes a surprise visit. We have the details for you. Russian troops in Ukraine allegedly kicked up radioactive dust as they drove through a forest near the site of the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster. A Russian politician publicly criticizes the war in Ukraine at a local council meeting. She says she is prepared for the consequences of her actions. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says China needs to be labeled an adversary instead of a competitor. And he says the U.S. should recognize Taiwan's sovereignty. We tell you why. Russia says it has drastically cut military activity near Ukraine's capital for the sake of successful peace talks. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports on this. Face-to-face talks between Russia and Ukraine started up again Tuesday in Istanbul. They're the first direct talks in more than two weeks. One surprise attendee is Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich. He's sanctioned by the West over Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Ahead of the talks, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan told the delegations it's time for concrete results. He said it would benefit everyone if they achieve a ceasefire and peace as soon as possible. A Ukrainian advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky said they're discussing security guarantees and a ceasefire to resolve humanitarian issues. Intensive consultations are underway right now on some important issues, the most important of which is agreement on international security guarantees for Ukraine. On Monday, Ukraine's foreign minister said there are some topics that are not up for discussion. The president of Ukraine gave clear instructions to our delegation. We do not trade people, land or sovereignty. This is not a subject for negotiation. Meanwhile, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told PBS Monday that Russia would only use nuclear weapons if it faced an existential threat and not as a result of the current conflict with Ukraine. Any outcome of the operation, uh, of course, is not a reason for usage of a nuclear weapon. We have a security concept that very clearly states that only uh, when when there is a threat for existence of, of the state in our country, we can uh, use and we will actually use nuclear weapons to eliminate the threat for the existence of our country. Russia's deputy minister of defense said Tuesday that Russia has drastically reduced its military activity near Kyiv and another city to the north. He said the decision was made because talks with Ukraine are entering the, quote, practical stage. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. The Pentagon is planning to accelerate production of missiles as it continues to send weapons to Ukraine. These new weapons will go toward refilling the Defense Department's depleted stock. Officials say it is ramping up production of Stinger anti-air missiles and Javelin anti-tank missiles. According to a recent military assistance wish list, Ukraine has requested the U.S. deliver 1,000 of these weapons daily. The U.S. and other NATO members have already sent tens of thousands of missiles to help Ukraine fight off Russia's invasion. Now we take a look at how the conflict in Ukraine is affecting the defense industry more broadly. Industry executive David Luxton explains how an emerging technology in electronic warfare can reshape the field of battle. He starts by describing the capabilities of a tactical system called the designation of soldiers and pointing out which countries are showing an interest in them. 
And this is a high priority with NATO countries and NATO partners everywhere. And this is to be able to provide soldiers on the ground with real-time situational awareness information. In other words, what's going on? And to network them so they all know what's going on and they all have a common operating picture. Uh, that's one area. We take that a step further and actually apply it to weapon systems as well. So the weapon systems have the same knowledge or information, and now that transforms them uh, from dumb legacy weapon systems into smart, modern, precision weapon systems. And then we have uh, countermeasures uh, against electronic detection, which is a big problem in any modern fear of conflict. Even a relatively unsophisticated adversary can detect your location from your electronic transmissions, whether it's data, voice, uh, whatever. And, um, and, and we have something unique that counters that in order to keep troops safer. So, David, what are you seeing? Which side of the conflict is employing these tactical services more? Well, right now, the, these are uh, new next-generation systems. And so they're they're not fielded uh, anywhere in any significant quantity, but we're suddenly seeing uh, real acceleration in interest from uh, NATO countries and uh, and from countries like the Ukraine involved in the conflict. Uh, but this is the future of warfare, and so we expect to see this become ubiquitous and standard in the battle space. You alluded to the underdog being able to use these effectively. How would Ukraine employ these tactical services? Well, without uh, <clears throat> giving away anything uh, of security sensitivity, uh, just for your for your forces on the ground to have situational awareness and have the common picture of what's going on uh, is a tactical advantage right away. Secondly, if you can snap the same capability onto uh, weapon systems, particularly what are called indirect fire weapon systems like mortars and so on. You now can engage enemy from further back, from behind cover, and uh, fire this like, uh, really like a video game, great precision. And then on the electronic detection side, <clears throat> if you can spoof or fool the enemy into thinking you are where you're not, and you can create many phantom locations like that, uh, that slows them down because they now have to send out uh, surveillance assets to, to see what's accounting for those transmissions. And it can cause them to also bring ordnance to bear on the targets. So it can be firing uh, missiles, uh, it can be firing artillery, and a lot of this uh, is wasted because they're firing onto phantom locations. Russian troops made a suicidal drive through the highly radioactive Red Forest when they seized the site of the former Chernobyl nuclear plant. That's according to workers on duty there who said some of the soldiers never heard of the 1986 nuclear disaster. Russian soldiers drove through a highly toxic zone without radiation protection when they seized the site of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster last February. That's according to two Ukrainian workers on duty there at the time who said they saw the Russians' armored vehicles kick up clouds of radioactive dust as they drove through the so-called Red Forest. It's the most radioactively contaminated area around Chernobyl and got its name when miles of pine trees turned red after absorbing radiation from the 1986 explosion. In an interview with Reuters on Monday, Balthasar Lindauer, a nuclear safety department head at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, 
called the Russian troops reckless. We had, have seen in the first few days a spike in radiation that is very likely um, due to um, the transport of, of heavy military equipment. So that gives you an in indication that um, the, these troops um, do, do not know what they're doing and behaving recklessly. Lindauer said it was lucky they've done no further damage so far. The behavior of the troops continues as, um, as they have shown in the past. Of course, there's a huge um, danger for severe accidents that could affect the region and, uh, and it would be um, a disaster. One of the Chernobyl workers told Reuters some of the soldiers now stationed there said they had never heard of the 1986 nuclear disaster. And one called the Russian soldiers' Red Forest Drive suicidal, as inhaling the radioactive dust would likely cause internal radiation. Reuters could not independently verify their accounts, and Russia's defense ministry did not respond to requests for comment. A local councillor in southern Russia who criticized Moscow's invasion of Ukraine says she felt obligated to speak up and was prepared for the consequences. I am against the decision that was taken by the President of the Russian Federation and against the actions that are taking place today on sovereign Ukrainian territory. I consider what is happening there to be a war crime. The district councillor has asked law enforcement to investigate Deputy Nina Belyayeva for extremism after she made the comments on March 22nd. Public criticism of the war carries risks. Thousands of Russians who took part in protests have been detained over the past month, and a state TV producer who interrupted a live news bulletin by holding up an anti-war sign has been fined. At the meeting, some council members asked the deputy what is going through her head. Another asked her to consider the Russian soldiers who are giving their lives. One counselor accused her of encouraging Russian soldiers to surrender, an allegation she denies. The deputy said that as of Friday night, she had not been charged with any offense. Although she does not support the war, the Russian Communist Party, to which she belongs to, does. Residents from Mariupol in eastern Ukraine are fleeing the besieged city. What have they experienced and what are they saying? Shattered by Russian artillery, the windshield of a car that a Ukrainian family used to make their two-day escape from the besieged port city of Mariupol. We meet Natalia shortly after her family reaches relative safety in the parking lot of a superstore on the edge of the Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia. The day before yesterday, an artillery shell hit our house, she says. Half of the house is gone. This is what was left. If Russia sees this, I want them to know that they aren't defending us, they are killing us, because they seem to think they're defending us, and that's just not true. This parking lot, an unofficial gateway to Ukrainian-controlled territory for more than 70,000 Ukrainians who officials say fled Mariupol. The evacuees look shell-shocked. They arrive in vehicles draped with white rags and signs that say, children, and some, like four-year-old Alisa Isaeva, show up in yellow school buses. They were bombing us, she says. Bombing us with planes and tanks. Alisa's aunt Lilia says she suffered from a concussion for days after a strike hit her home. We walked among corpses. There were bodies under the evergreens, soldiers without heads, 
without arms. They are lying there. Inside the superstore, volunteers and the city government are trying to help. For some who survived Russia's modern-day siege, this is the first hint of safety they've had in weeks. Outside, Yulia Mishodova and her son Stanislav have just arrived. And bear! Stanislav is chatty and upbeat, but his mother appears unsteady. When Russian warplanes bombed, she says, the family hid under the dining room table, surrounded by pillows. When the plane flew past, we were sheltering in the center of town. Until now, my ear still hurts from the shockwave. The unlikely safe haven provided in this parking lot is precarious. Ukrainian officials say Russian troops are positioned barely a half hour's drive away from here. Ukrainian women have endured many hardships during Russia's invasion of their country, between leaving their homes behind and fleeing with their children, as well as some experiencing the horrors of being pregnant in maternity wards amid Russian bombings. But how have Ukrainian women responded to these challenges? Author Vanessa Ferleno offers her insight. I think it's phenomenal. I mean, first of all, you have that, you know, some of them having to force to flee with their children, with their family, very, very challenging. But I think you have so many of them are still united and still banding together with the nation through their empathy, through their compassion. They are coming back and they are finding ways to support, whether it's right on the front lines or supporting those that are fleeing. And I think it's it's a really beautiful thing that's happening. There's so much happening around them. There's so much being taken away from them but they are still there and they are still finding ways to stay connected and be united together as a nation. What can you tell us about the culture in Ukraine and how it relates to how women have responded? I mean, I know that traditionally the Ukraine culture, I think that women always had a little bit more of a voice and they were always more celebrated, but now I think everyone in the world were able to see this, we're able to see what happens when we empower women and we give them that space and their voices. They, no one had to ask them to step up to the plate. They did it because they were connected and they used all these things that are often kind of squashed, you know, empathy, compassion, those things in leadership aren't often really allowed. Um, but in this case, that is what they're doing. They are expressing this and they are staying here. They're stepping up to the plate. And that all comes from that cultural background of having been a little bit more celebrated than, uh, than the way that, that in maybe more Western cultures. I know for a fact with, with marriage, actually Ukrainian women had the option to turn down the giving away uh, by the groom. And I think it's things like that, right? Those little things that gave women voices that maybe not were not the same in other nations. Uh, that does and empowers people. And that's what we need to be seeing um, on the global stage now. So, Vanessa, some Ukrainian women have chosen not to flee, but instead to join the country's military services. What do you make of this? I mean, it's phenomenal. It's, 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 it's phenomenal to stay there and support your nation. That's what it's all about. It's about being grounded. It's about understanding who you are and what you believe in and not letting anything scare you. And, and I think it's, it's amazing. I think when we look historically back at World War One and World War Two. You know, women did step up, but now that now it's being celebrated. At the time, it wasn't necessarily celebrated as much, but now they are being celebrated globally for those actions. And it's it's phenomenal to see um, our nations coming together this way. It really is. Republicans placed a week-long hold on the vote to advance Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson's Supreme Court nomination. They cite gaps in Jackson's record and incomplete documentation from the White House. 
Republican Senator Chuck Grassley says he'll have more to say about Judge Jackson at a meeting a week from now, but he did say Jackson's record is unfortunately incomplete. He says information has been withheld, like documents from Jackson's time on the U.S. Sentencing Commission and 48,000 pages of documents held back by the Obama White House. He says it appears the White House wants to hide Jackson's record. Grassley also says Jackson gave lawmakers vague answers to questions and left lawmakers on both sides of the aisle dissatisfied. The hold extends the committee vote on Jackson to April 4th. Republicans have few tools at their disposal to slow it further. Once set, Jackson's nomination is expected to breeze through the committee. On the Senate floor, Jackson is set to receive the support of a majority of Democrats, including swing voting senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed into law the Parental Rights and Education Bill, also called the Don't Say Gay Bill by critics. The legislation has faced heavy pushback from progressives. DeSantis hit back, questioning the intentions of those opposing the bill. Here are the details. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the Parental Rights and Education Bill into law Monday. The bill bans teachers from giving classroom instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in kindergarten through third grade. The bill was dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill by opponents. They claimed it would ban any classroom discussion pertaining to being gay and marginalize members of the LGBTQ community. This led to outcry from progressive activists and politicians nationwide. Even Disney condemned the bill. DeSantis strongly pushed back on these claims. And they're sloganeering because they don't want to admit that they support a lot of the things that we're providing protections against. For example, they support sexualizing kids in kindergarten. They support injecting woke gender ideology into second grade classrooms. They support enabling schools to, quote, transition students to a, quote, different gender without the knowledge of the parent, much less without the parent's consent. The bill was mocked at the Oscars Sunday night, with the event's co-host repeating the word gay as the crowd applauded. DeSantis hit back at his critics in Hollywood, saying, If the people who held up degenerates like Harvey Weinstein up as exemplars and as heroes and as all that, if those are the types of people that are opposing us on parents' rights, I wear that like a badge of honor. The bill also includes measures to empower parents and give them greater oversight. Under the new law, parents will be able to sue school districts for violations. Florida mother January Littlejohn spoke at the signing. She said without her knowledge, her daughter's school facilitated her identifying as a different gender, including by calling her a different name in class and asking which bathroom she wanted to use. This created a huge wedge between our daughter and us because it sent the message that she needed to be protected from us, not by us. Many parent groups and child advocates say Florida is on the front lines of a nationwide battle. Parental rights and education is expected to be a hot-button issue during the upcoming midterm elections. Grace Coulter, NTD News. And the Walt Disney Company has responded to the bill's signing, vowing to help get the law repealed in the legislature or struck down in court. In a statement, the company said it's supporting organizations working to achieve this adding that it's dedicated to standing up for the rights and safety of the LGBTQ community. Equality Florida, an advocacy group, 
has pledged to take legal action against the law. A milestone in the pandemic, this time one that's a sigh of relief and perhaps a sign of the next chapter. The last U.S. military medical team responding to the COVID-19 crisis wraps up its clinical mission today. For the past two years, nearly 5,000 federal personnel have been deployed across 49 states and territories. But now, every one of those missions is finally over. More than 65% of people in the U.S. are fully vaccinated, and COVID-19 hospitalizations have dropped near their lowest point ever. It doesn't mean our battle with the virus is over, and these teams stand by at the ready. But there's no doubt this is progress. The heads of New York's two firefighter unions reportedly might sue the city because of its vaccine mandate. As of last week, athletes and performers in the city don't have to be vaccinated anymore, but all public and private sector employees still have to be vaccinated in order to work in the city. The heads of the unions said they want to sit down with Mayor Adams to discuss the mandate. Adams responded that he is willing to sit down with everybody who wants to talk to him, but he made clear that no changes to mandates will be made before his health experts advise him to do so. He called it removing the mandates in layers. Around 1,400 city workers lost their jobs when the public sector mandate was implemented. Unvaccinated United Airlines staff were allowed back on the job after being put on unpaid leave. That's according to an internal memo reviewed by Fox News Business. United's vice president of human resources said in the memo that the airline is confident in its ability to safely bring back the employees, citing a decline in virus cases, deaths, and hospitalizations. Over 2,000 United employees who received a medical or religious exemption from the vaccine were placed on unpaid leave. The memo says that five out of the 2,200 employees who had received an exemption died of the virus. Employees were also told the company will reevaluate protocols if another variant emerges or the COVID trends suddenly reverse course. Amazon is gearing up for its toughest labor fight yet. Warehouse workers in Staten Island, New York, and Bessemer, Alabama, will determine whether or not they want to form a union. If a majority votes yes at either location, it would mark the first successful U.S. organizing effort in Amazon history. Rejection would match notch another victory for the country's second largest employer in keeping unions at bay. Last April, workers in Bessemer overwhelmingly voted against a union bid, Federal labor officials later scrapped the results and ordered a redo, ruling that Amazon tainted the election process. Ballots for the second election were mailed to 6,100 employees in early February. The counting process is expected to start this week. Meanwhile, Amazon workers in Staten Island Warehouse began in-person voting Friday in their first union election. The facility is one of Amazon's largest in New York City, with more than 8,300 employees. Voting will wrap up Wednesday, with the counting expected to begin soon after. FedEx has a new leader. Raj Subramaniam has been named chief executive officer of the U.S. package delivery company. He's filling the shoes of Fred Smith, who started the company in 1973. Smith says he feels a, quote, great sense of satisfaction that a leader of the caliber of Raj Subramaniam will take FedEx into a very successful future. It won't be easy, though. Subramaniam will transition from his current role as COO into his new position June 1st, 
as the company faces mounting competition from UPS and Amazon. Walmart plans to stop selling tobacco products at some of its stores in the U.S. A spokesperson for the world's largest retailer says it made the decision after looking into tobacco sales. Walmart did not say how many stores will stop stocking the products. According to the Wall Street Journal, the company is removing cigarettes from stores in various markets, including some locations in California, Florida, Arkansas, and New Mexico. The journal reports the stores will replace cigarettes with other products like food or candy and more self-checkout registers. Just ahead, video shows a multi-vehicle crash in Pennsylvania. Multiple tractor trailers were involved. About 20 people were taken to the hospital. That and more on NTD News. Pennsylvania County Coroner said at least three people died in a collision involving more than 50 vehicles. The pileup closed a portion of an interstate and sent more than a dozen people to area hospitals. Officials believe a snow squall clouded visibility and likely contributed to the accident. Multiple tractor trailers were involved in the initial crash. Emergency personnel from four different counties responded and took about 20 patients to area hospitals for treatment. Footage uploaded to social media shows an out-of-control tractor-trailer smashing into a large dump truck, turning it nearly 180 degrees. Another large truck spewed black smoke and orange flames into the air. An SUV struck a passenger car, sending the sedan spinning, just missing its driver who stood on the shoulder of the highway. Schuylkill County's Transportation Authority helped transport uninjured motorists involved in the crash to a warming center set up by the local Red Cross. The body of a one-year-old Florida boy who had been missing for a day was found on Monday in a septic tank on the property where his family lives. Investigators say evidence points to his death being accidental. Putnam County Sheriff's Department says Jose Lara's body was found in a septic tank about 35 yards from his family's home in Putnam County. This was after investigators searched for him decided to drain the tank. More than 120 law enforcement officers and firefighters searched a two-square-mile area since Sunday. The decision was made early Monday to drain the septic tank. A plywood board that covered the septic tank initially didn't look like it had been disturbed, but investigators believe the boy stepped on the rotted cover and fell in. Police in New Jersey are investigating an unusual accident involving a human corpse. It happened Friday. According to Paramus Police, a truck pulling a horse trailer crashed into a funeral home van and a body was ejected from the vehicle. Three people were taken to the hospital. However, their injuries were not considered serious. The horse in the trailer was not hurt. Another Bay Area news outlet is the victim of a recent crime. This time, it was an entire office. Property was lost, but fortunately, no injuries were reported. The city of Oakland has seen a few recent incidents of news crews being robbed and attacked. However, this time, it was a newspaper office. 
Employees at the Oakland Post came in on Thursday morning to find their offices ransacked. The paper's editor, Paul Cobb, told Mercury News that fortunately nobody was hurt during the crime. The paper's business manager said they estimate a loss of about $15,000 in property and damages. The Oakland police said they are still investigating the incident and no arrests have been made so far. The Oakland Post is where slain journalist Chauncey Bailey worked as editor when he was assassinated in 2007. Bailey was killed by the former leader of your black Muslim bakery for an investigative story the journalist was working on. Earlier this month, a portion of the street the Oakland Post is located on was named Chauncey Bailey Way in the journalist's honor. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. Firefighters in Florida were part of an effort over the weekend to rescue an adolescent bald eagle caught in a section of fishing line. The rescue team included wildlife rescue of Dade County, Miami-Dade firefighters from Platform 34, and an employee of Zoo Miami. After rescuing the eaglet, named Artu, the team got rid of the excess line. Wildlife workers were hoping Artu would stay around for the next few days and continue her fledging phase. However, she ended up in the backyard of a nearby home and apparently still had fishing lines stuck to her foot. Firefighters again worked with Wildlife Rescue of Dade County to place her back in the nest. Three people died and five were injured yesterday after a light aircraft crashed inside a supermarket in central Mexico. The accident occurred in Morello State, about 40 miles south of Mexico City. Emergency workers arrived at the scene where they assisted the five injured people, four of whom were shopping at the supermarket when the aircraft crashed. Local authorities say the four people on board the aircraft took off from Acapulco and headed to Puebla. Three of them were killed in the accident and the other person is being treated. The Morelos Prosecutor's Office and Civil Aeronautics will investigate the causes that led to the accident. Coming up, the U.S. and the Philippines launched a joint military exercise, the largest in seven years. This comes amid Beijing's expansion in the South China Sea. Solomon Islands Prime Minister defends a security deal with China. That's in response to backlash from the country's Pacific neighbors. That and more after this short break. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says the U.S. should label China an adversary. He made the remark in recognition of growing threats from the Chinese Communist Party. Right now, China is labeled a competitor to the United States. Pompeo also commented on Washington's relationship with Taiwan. According to Pompeo, the next strategy for U.S. national security should focus on curbing authoritarianism. And he says Taiwan's sovereignty should be formally recognized. That's in order to deter Chinese communist aggression. Pompeo told the Hudson Institute it's dangerous to keep an ambiguous stance on Taiwan, saying authoritarians will use that ambiguity against you every time. We ought to acknowledge that Taiwan is an independent nation. It's not part of the Chinese Communist Party. The CCP claims Taiwan as its own, but Taiwan has been independently governed since 1949, and the CCP has never controlled it. The U.S. has a doctrine of what's called strategic ambiguity regarding Taiwan. 
It means it doesn't affirm nor deny whether it would help Taiwan militarily if the CCP threatens its independence. Pompeo made the comments ahead of Biden's upcoming national security strategy. It's expected to be released soon. Over the last year, the administration has recognized China as a strategic competitor. It's a designation the Trump administration first developed and Pompeo helped to craft. Though now Pompeo says, we use the word competitor, I would use the word adversary today if I were writing this myself. Pompeo said he doesn't believe the current administration understands the threat posed by the CCP and he questions Washington's decision to place climate change ahead of an already adversarial, ahead of an increasingly adversarial relationship with China. He says it sends the wrong message internationally, adding the Chinese Communist Party itself understands power deeply and they respect only power. Not too terribly long ago, President Biden was with a group of soldiers. He told those soldiers, uniformed military personnel, that the greatest security risk to the United States of America was climate change. I think that's very telling about what he personally believes. The former top U.S. diplomat said those beliefs were impacting Washington's ability to deter its adversaries. Some of Biden's cabinet members are rather hawkish toward the Chinese regime, though his administration gave what has been viewed as a concession to the CCP when it announced it was ending the China initiative. The program sought to counter the regime's espionage. What's more, the Senate just passed a bill boosting U.S. competitiveness. It's in response to threats posed by the Chinese regime. The multi-billion dollar bill supports the U.S. high-tech industry, particularly the domestic semiconductor chip sector. The U.S. and the Philippines have begun one of their largest joint military exercises in recent years. This comes amid a growing threat from Beijing in the South China Sea. Filipino and U.S. forces kicked off their largest joint military drill since 2015. The two sides held an opening ceremony in the Philippine capital of Manila. This combined joint exercise is an opportunity for the United States and the Philippines to reaffirm our commitment to even more robust ties and to a relationship that remains highly relevant as the world faces new and continuing challenges. Known as Balakatan, the annual war games involve some 9,000 soldiers from both countries. The Balakatan exercise truly embodies the friendship and alliance between our two countries. After all, Balikatan from the Filipino word balikat means shoulder to shoulder. The two-week exercises come amid rising aggression from Beijing in the South China Sea. An international tribunal has dismissed Communist China's claim to much of the disputed waters. But for years, the regime has been building military bases on artificial islands in the region. So far, it has fully militarized at least three of the islands there. U.S. security analysts say this marks a shift in the military balance of power in the Indo-Pacific region, and the move is prompting the U.S. to strengthen ties with local allies. As we work continuously shoulder to shoulder, this exercise shall certainly strengthen the interoperability of both our, arm, our armed forces for mutual defense, humanitarian assistance, and disaster response, and decisively contribute to the peace and stability of the Indo-Pacific region. On Sunday, the Philippines reported an incident of close-distance maneuvering by a Chinese Coast Guard vessel. It came within about 20 yards of a Philippine patrol vessel, allegedly constraining its movement. 
According to the Philippine Coast Guard, the Chinese ship violated the 1972 international regulations for preventing collisions at sea. Solomon Islands is on the verge of reaching a security deal with China amid concerns from its Pacific neighbors. But the country's prime minister dismissed foreign criticism of the decision as insulting. Solomon Islands is poised to sign a security pact with China. It will allow Chinese police, troops and weapons to be stationed in the area. Addressing parliament, the country's prime minister responded to backlash the decision generated. The security treaty, Mr. Speaker, is pursued at the request of Solomon Islands government. We are not pressured. We are not pressured in any way by our new friends. And there is no intention whatsoever, Mr. Speaker, to ask China to build a military base in Solomon Islands. Goodness. We're insulted. We're insulted by such unfound, unfounded stories. He said the agreement is now ready for signing. Pages of the document were leaked last week, sparking concern among Pacific neighbors, including New Zealand and Australia. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison said the security partnership has caused great concern across the Pacific. Uh, we respect the sovereignty of our individual island states in our region. Um, they make their own decisions in their own places and we respect their, their democracies. And uh, at the same time, though, we will work with our, our, our partner states in the Pacific uh, to ensure there is a, a keen understanding of the risks and threats that we believe this poses. And we've made those positions very clear. Solomon Islands boasts major sea lanes in the Pacific. Michael Shoebridge is with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He says this new deal with China could lead to a fundamental change for the region. He told the Epoch Times that, quote, everything we see happening in the South China Sea, East China Sea, and the Taiwan Straits, that will be enabled right here in the South Pacific by a growing People's Liberation Army presence. Eielson Air Force Base in Alaska performed a spectacular readiness drill known as an elephant walk. The exercise is a display of military power in the context of the war in Ukraine. The capability demonstration involved 42 F-35A Lightning II aircraft. They are under the command of the 354th Fighter Wing, one of the world's premier fifth-generation fighter units. The base is located within the Arctic region. It provides an ideal environment for pilots to train in extreme weather conditions. The readiness drills are part of the base's regular training operations. According to Commander David Berkland, the wing's last exercise was in December 2020. He called the recent one a success. The events are designed to hone the pilot's ability to cope with real-world contingencies. Just last week, South Korea carried out similar training activities including an elephant walk with 28 F-35 fighter jets. That was the same day that North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile. An American lawyer tells Hong Kong Free Press he will appeal to the highest levels about his arrest and deportation from Hong Kong. He says the charges against him were politically motivated. Lawyer Samuel Bickett is now in the U.S. He was convicted of assaulting a police officer in Hong Kong. He is also known for protesting the political crackdown in the city. Bickett moved to Hong Kong in 2013. In 2019, he intervened when he saw a man beating a minor with a baton in a train station. He says the man did not properly identify himself as a police officer when he stepped in, and that the force used was unjustified. 
In 2021, Bickett was sentenced and began serving his jail sentence. He appealed unsuccessfully and served more time before he was deported. He says he will continue to publicize his experience and that he hopes he and others like him can one day return to Hong Kong. Next up, in Costa Rica, biologists discover 20 new miniature orchid species. And a research biologist says the discoveries strengthen calls to protect Costa Rica's unique wildlife. Production of Tasmania's famous leatherwood honey has been declining. A dry spell is now hitting this Australian island. Find out more here on NTD News. Costa Rica, biologists have recently discovered 20 new miniature orchid species. It's thought that a third of orchid species growing in Costa Rica are indigenous to the Central American country, strengthening calls to protect its unique biodiversity. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. At Lancaster Botanical Garden at the University of Costa Rica, university researchers say they've discovered 20 new miniature orchid species in conservation areas and biological reserves across Costa Rica. Research biologist Adam Karamans says the discoveries strengthen calls to protect Costa Rica's unique wildlife. The, Costa Rica the fact that we still discover so much unknown biodiversity in the country speaks of the richness that Costa Rica has of biodiversity, specifically of orchids and other organisms. But it also speaks of the responsibility that Costa Rica has to conserve these organisms because being endemic to the country and that they only grow in one of these protected areas means that we Costa Ricans must take care of them. Among the newly discovered species is the Epidendrum capitolinum, found just 10 miles from the center of San Jose. Costa Rica currently has about 1,600 different orchid species registered. Among those species are the smallest orchids in the world. At Lancaster Botanical Garden, the endemic orchid species of Costa Rica are exhibited to the general public. Among them, the Guaria Morada, the national flower. Costa Rica has the highest rate of orchid species per square kilometer in the world. Costa Rica has an average of 1,640 different orchid species registered at this moment, thanks to the work we have been doing in the last years, and that puts it on par with mega-diverse countries like Colombia, Brazil, Peru, and Ecuador. But being a much smaller country, Costa Rica is really an incredible place to study this type of plants. Orchids' diverse colors and scents have a habit of attracting pollinators. Some of the country's most common visitors are insects and birds, which feed on the nectar the flowers provide. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Tasmania is famous for its leatherwood honey, but now a dry spell is putting production at risk. Reduced rainfall in Western Australia has locals concerned. Deep in the Australian forests of Western Tasmania, there are fragile flowers that burst from leatherwood trees. It's unique. This place we're in right now is absolutely unique. You'll never find it in the world anywhere else. Tasmania's beekeepers rely on the leatherwood trees to produce their world-renowned honey. But this year, the flowers are withering just a few weeks after blooming. The whole forest is dry. The moss is dry, it's dry. If you drop the match in it, go like a bonfire. And um, yeah, you wouldn't stop it. And I'd hate to see a fire in this area because once leatherwood's burnt out, it's finished. It never comes back. 
For 90 years, the Stevens family has been making honey here, and this is the driest period they've seen in the rainforest since 1973. Four years ago, the Leatherwoods didn't produce any flowers. The average rainfall in the region should be around 200 millimeters, or about 8 inches every month during summer, but not this year. So what we saw were, were less than 100 mils per month over large parts of western Tasmania. So that's you know, less than half of what we'd normally get. Seasonal conditions are not the only factors stressing beekeepers. Many leatherwoods have disappeared. Since the 1960s, we've lost about 80% of the leatherwood resource in Tasmania, um, not just due to forestry, that's also forest fires. It's not only honey production that's in trouble, but food crops that rely on bees for pollination as well. And while the production of honey will be reduced this year, Stevens remains positive. For the next two or three weeks, across our legs and fingers and hope the sun keeps coming out and we'll do all right. Tasmania's forestry agencies have reached an agreement with beekeepers. Together, they are working to ensure protection of crucial leatherwood regions. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson says his agency will stay at the forefront of space exploration and return to the moon soon. He describes big plans for NASA's Artemis program. Just last week, we announced a plan for more competition to add additional landers to carry astronauts to the lunar surface. We expect to land about once a year for more than a decade. We're going to put a, an outpost or something like a station in lunar orbit. It's going to be in a polar orbit of the moon. And we're going to call it Gateway. President Biden's $26 billion request for NASA's 2023 budget is the largest request for science in the space agency's history. That's according to NASA Administrator Bill Nelson, who added that the amount is 8% more than the appropriation bill from fiscal year 2022. Nelson said it represents an investment in the businesses and universities that partner with NASA and the good-paying jobs they are creating. NASA officials believe it will allow the agency to continue investing in the Artemis program. Another goal of the program is to prepare NASA for the first human exploration of Mars. A launch by Jeff Bezos's space company Blue Origin, scheduled for today, has been delayed until Thursday due to weather. This is file video from another launch. This week's scheduled launch came to public attention when it was announced that Saturday Night Live star Pete Davidson would be on board. He canceled the trip after it was delayed by six days a couple of weeks ago. A company employee was selected to occupy his seat alongside a small group of other paying customers. The launch will mark the fourth crewed mission by Blue Origin. Astronaut food is getting a major upgrade, celebrity chef style. Jose Andres is preparing a special version of his signature paella to send up to the International Space Station. The chef concentrated not only on giving the Spanish staple bold flavors that the astronauts would enjoy, but also on fulfilling strict nutrition requirements set by NASA. The finished product is scheduled to go up to the space station next month. It will ride alongside the first mission to the ISS with an entirely private crew. Axiom Space is funding the trip. Did you know that moving your body benefits your brain? Let's get some tips from Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. 
sad reality is that your brain shrinks with age. As we grow older, our memory, concentration and focus can fade. Statistics show that every three seconds, somewhere in the world, a new patient is diagnosed with dementia. There are many things you can do to improve how well the brain functions as you age. We now know through research that the brain can regenerate at any age, and exercise is the key to brain health. Moving your body just makes sense. If you can get your heart rate up for a minimum of 15 to 30 minutes per day, studies show that you can actually grow new brain cells. There isn't a part of your body that can be at its peak without oxygen and good circulation. So stop overworking your brain all week with stress, worry and scattered thoughts. Try to establish a habit by doing some form of body movement every day for 30 days. Go for a walk, hike, bike ride, turn on some music and dance or use a jump rope. Whatever you like for 15 to 30 minutes. Attempt to get your heart rate up to the point that you are sweating or slightly breathless. Studies show that exercise in the morning allows you to burn calories, set your day on the right track for higher production, enhances mood, energy and focus. Here are a few other benefits of exercising. Exercise helps you connect with others socially, which is one of the determinants of living longer. Allow your brain the space to manage stressful events and to help set your emotional state for the upcoming day. Lowers inflammation, which is connected to body pain, fatigue and autoimmune diseases and dementia. Exercise is an extremely effective tool for managing and treating depression and anxiety. Exercise helps you control your eating, cravings and overall weight as you age. Exercise regularly enhances deeper sleep at night, restoring your body and brain. So the next time you get frustrated that you can't remember the simplest of things, treat yourself to a good brisk walk. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.